Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday morning, which means that we have a new episode for you. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today is... Ray Kim. Thanks for being here today, Ray. It's so great to have you. Thanks for having me, too. So today, we are hearing your recent interview with Jay Brent Crossan on his recent book, Experiments with Power, Obia and the Remaking of Religion in Trinidad. Can you tell us a little about this episode and what our listeners can expect to hear? Yeah. During the episode, we do a dive into his award-winning book. It is a rich ethnographic experience, Trinidad, uh, an Anglophone Caribbean island nation. Beyond just being a very beautiful, exciting read and and a profile of, let's say, Caribbean or Afro-Caribbean religions, he also gets into an exploration of the category of religion. Who gets to define religion? Who gets left out of being categorized as a religion? And some of the inherent violence that comes with liberal secularism, right, of enforcing these categories of religion and secularity. And All of that through this case study of how spiritual workers in Trinidad live and practice Olbia. That sounds really fascinating. This is an interview I've really been looking forward to. And I think there's going to be a lot here for our listeners to take away, whether it's focusing on the category of religion and the effects of those categorizations, or whether anyone is wanting to just explore Obia more in depth mm-hmm. or looking at, you know, methodological approaches in the study of religion. I feel like there's really kind of something for everybody. Absolutely. I can't wait to hear it. Take it away. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in again to the Religious Studies Project. Today, we are pleased to have Dr. J. Brent Crossan with us here to discuss his award-winning book, Experiments with Power, Obia, and the Remaking of Religion in Trinidad, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2020. Dr. Crossan is an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Texas, Austin, as well as the coordinator for the university's Caribbeanist Labs on Religion. And his book, Experiments with Power, won the 2021 Clifford Geertz Prize from the Society for the Anthropology of Religion, and is currently shortlisted for the Albert J. Rabateau Prize from the Journal of Africana Religions. Welcome, Dr. Crossan. Thanks so much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, to get things kicked off, could you start us off by sharing a bit about Trinidad that you have come to know over the course of your research? Sure, yeah. It's a subject I love talking about. I was trained as an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, and so I did ethnographic research in Trinidad. What that means is simply living and breathing a place and taking the time that it takes to be transformed by a place, at least partially. And so I lived there for about two years and have gone back continually since. So my research is based on that time I spent there. And to a certain extent, it meant making new kin networks, new friend networks, and learning from the people there. And so one of the kind of cornerstones of the book is kind of reversing a dynamic between object of study and agent of study, or in other words, uh, what is theory and and what is um, case study. And so I see Trinidad itself as 
not just an object of study or an island geographical frame, but a lens through which to see the world or to see worlds. So to talk about Trinidad, you know, as a context, I want to make clear that it is a particular context. It's comprised of, in terms of census categories, and I'm going to complicate those hopefully in our conversation, but in terms of the everyday census categories, comprised almost equally of the two largest categories are people of African descent and people of Indian descent from India. And I just want to make that clear because a lot of the times that's not what people think about when they think about the Caribbean. So Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, in all of their variety of forms, again, I'll complicate these categories, but they're all present there. African religions, Orisha, which is a Yoruba-inspired tradition in the same way that Santeria or Lukumi in Cuba or Candomblé in Brazil are are Yoruba-inspired traditions to to considerable extent. Those are all present there, as well as um, forms of esotericism that often get grouped under the category Western esotericism. Mm. That's called Kabbalah in Trinidad, which is not the same thing as what we might be familiar with through Madonna or whatever (laughs) pop cultural reference or through actual study of the Jewish Kabbalah. There's a particular tradition in Trinidad which involves spirit manifestation of entities that are Kabbalistic entities that include a variety of characters who might be professors, priests, criminals, esoteric writers. Mm. And so these are and that's a part of the the what I call the threefold path. And so in Trinidad, the threefold path of African religions is comprised of Orisha, which is again as a Yuru inspired tradition devoted to the Orishas from West Africa also absorbing Central African elements. The second one is spiritual Baptists, and that's a overtly Christian. Again, many Orisha practitioners are Christian. Many practitioners of Kabbalah are Christian because these aren't mutually exclusive categories. Mm. In fact, the threefold path refers to people that to some extent practice all three of these things. The spiritual Baptists are a Christian group that practice a form of blindfolding that's uh, rooted in a biblical passage and has biblical justifications. And this blindfolding is meant to stimulate the spirit to separate from the body and to travel in a world called, or multiple worlds called the spiritual lands, in -hmm. which one might travel to the bottom of the ocean or to spiritual nations of Africa, India, and China, but also to a variety of other locations. And so these are also the principal physical homelands of Trinidad's people, Africa, India, China, also Syria, but people also travel to the North Pole or Europe. I've heard wow. different stories about that. But uh, there's also spiritual nations. Huh. And someone who, of African descent who doesn't claim any descent from India might find that they're Indian in the spirit. That's fascinating. And have to start adopting certain practices that would be identified with Hinduism uh-huh. or Islam. Sometimes those two get conflated. It's, it's a complicated situation. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that Trinidad is not just a small... Uh, island geography in the way that we often think about the Caribbean. It's a lens through which to see the world. And in fact, it contains the world or a considerable extent of the world, religiously, ethno-racially, and much more. So I'm kind of following in the footsteps of the Haitian anthropologist Michel Rolf-Trio to look at the ways that we can reverse the dynamics between what we're studying and what we assume to be the agent of study. And so I see not just Trinidad, but also Obia, which Mm -hmm. we'll talk about, as lenses through which to reinterpret some of the universals that we use on an everyday basis. And the book most especially is trying to reconceive of universals of religion, Mm. race, community, ethics, 
secularism, sovereignty, justice, and law. And it's divided into three parts that address these universals adopting Trinidad and my interlocutors theorizations as the way through which to to really reinterpret these everyday categories that are used Mm. all over the world now. Yeah. And I really appreciated, I think, reading your book, how you didn't treat your interlocutors as simply informants. They came off on the pages as partner theorists, right? That you do, that they had deeply complex theories about what religion is, what obia is, how it functions and, you know, all these things. And you didn't simply just kind of treat them as passive objects to learn from or to extrapolate data from. It really felt like you were doing a lot of theorizing with them. Yeah, I really, I wanted to try to not just treat people or a place as a, as a case study or as an example of an argument, but to be in dialogue in such a way as to transform my own presuppositions and my own arguments that I was trying to make as I did fieldwork, as I'd for, you know formulate and reformulate whatever it was I was doing there. And it really was a, a dialogue um, where sometimes the tables got turned and... Mm. I remember one time explicitly the guy insisting on interviewing me <laughs> after I, I interviewed him a little bit. And then he's like, OK, now I'm going to interview you. And that was great. But it was yeah, happening in, in it was happening in other, you know, more informal ways, too, where people would ask me what I was doing. And sometimes even in one case, somebody had a dream that I was a person like me was going to come, although she got the in her dream. It was an Indian man, but I turned out to be a white man. But she had this dream of of somebody who is coming to not to become a part of the tradition, but to to get a better understanding, to learn about it. And she she opened up to me because of that dream. And so there's a there's a variety of ways of dialoguing that transformed my own presuppositions. And so that's kind of the foundation for the ethnographic process of the book. Mm-hmm. And you already mentioned this word, obia. And it's in your title. If you were to explain it to somebody who's completely unfamiliar with this term, how would you describe it? How would you define it? Well, obia is many things. And I say in the book that, although I think they made me put in the description for the book that I define what obia is, or I at least address the question, which I always kind of wanted to resist because everybody always wants to put obia in this box of maybe what a religion would look like or what magic Mm. would look like. We'll talk about the... a lot of the book is written against distinctions between religion and magic. We'll talk about that later, I hope. But I always kind of resisted that. But I, I think it's worth talking about. And so obia becomes a category in the archival record. And of course, the archival record is is through the lens of colonial observers, largely in the 18th century, as connected to slave rebellions, slave conspiracies, in particular, the largest slave rebellion of the of the British Caribbean, which was Tacky's Rebellion or the Coromantee War of 1760. Obia is criminalized as a result of being connected to this rebellion. And what's foregrounded in accounts of Obia from British colonial observers is oath-taking. So Obia becomes connected with taking oaths, oaths to secrecy, pacts to rebel, and with protection in battle, wearing something that might protect one in battle or treating one's body in such a way as to protect one in battle. And I want to make the comment here that these are mundane practices that can be found in any number of what we call religions. And so wearing something into battle for luck or protection 
or using a religious object or book or whatever to to seal an oath, for example, in a court of law. Those are pretty mundane practices, but they were marked as being African mm-hmm. in the colonial record mm. and dangerous. And they were also described at times as science. And again, in the 18th century, science had a, a broader meaning than it or a different meaning than it does to us now, and that science could mean knowledge generally. It wasn't a professionalized practice divided up into various disciplines necessarily is the way we classify science now. Mm-hmm. So it's described as science, described as something that was brought from Africa. And then in debates with abolitionists in, in Britain, Obia was used by pro-slavery advocates as an alibi for slavery, as a way to explain the high mortality rates that investigators were finding on slave plantations as a result of something other than horrible working conditions, malnutrition, and <laughs> slavery itself. Yeah. And so it, it sounds silly, but there was, you know, there was an attempt in some of the reports to parliament to say that, you know, it wasn't all these horrible conditions. It was somehow fear of obia that could cause slaves to die. So there's this ambivalence from the beginning of treating obia as if it's very real, as if it has very real and powerful consequences. Mm. But slave rebellions, protection in battle, death, but at the same time wanting to say that it's not real, Mm. that it was actually superstitious belief that would cause one to die of fear rather than the, the actual power of obia itself. However, outlawing something and attributing all of these effects to it obviously saw Obia as a very real threat. And so from the beginning, there's there's an ambivalence in the language, and that continues after official emancipation in the British Empire, in which Obia is, is again, comes to be criminalized over the course of the 1800s and gets definitions that define it as eventually as any assumption of supernatural power. That's the wording of the law in Trinidad. But it's, it's criminalized across the Anglophone Caribbean, so Jamaica... Mm-hmm. And in Jamaica, it's still technically illegal as it still is in, in many parts of the independent Anglophone Caribbean. In Trinidad, Obio was decriminalized in the year 2000. And we can talk about that a bit later. And so that's kind of how Obia becomes a term. Even Diana Payton, who's a great historian of Obia, has called it a catch-all term. Hmm. A catch-all term for any number of practices that might there might be interest in criminalizing, stigmatizing, and coming under a broad umbrella of this idea of supernatural power, which is incredibly vague. And so people that identify as Hindus, Christians, Muslims are all prosecuted for obia in different ways in Jamaica and in Trinidad into different statistical proportions. So you get this also complication that despite being identified with Africa and Africanity, can be used to prosecute people who are not identified as being from Africa, the indentured laborers from Asia, Mm. South Asia, mostly. And so that's a part of the history of its criminalization as well. And as I said, it's still technically illegal in many parts of the Caribbean, and there are still negative attitudes as well as positive and vindicatory attitudes toward Obia across the region. And it's also played a key role in Canadian Supreme Court case, a number of court cases about the use of the police impersonating obia practitioners in Canada mm. to obtain obtain confessions and why is that acceptable when it's not acceptable for example for a catholic priest to obtain a confession and, and use that as evidence in the yeah. court of law yeah and it's played a key role in british popular culture 
to some extent in U.S. popular culture, there's examples of Luke Cage series, Marvel comic series, <laughs> comes up. Yeah. but it, it definitely plays a key role in Britain and Canada, in the U.S., in the Caribbean and Central America as well, because there were there were Caribbean diasporas there, and the Caribbean coast of Central America is is a is a is a part of this story as well. Okay. And so that's Obia. <laughs> how how do we relate that to, I guess, power? Power is another recurring theme and a central motif throughout your book. And I found it fascinating, right, that you, you title your book Experiments with Power and your interlocutors frequently eschewed the term, actually, a lot of the times explicitly. They're like, this is not a tradition, right? This is, a, this is an experiment, right? And then you have an entire chapter on the electricity of obia could you unpack that a little bit more why did you relate obia with power well this is a part of its criminalization and so on the one hand there is a desire to refute this idea that if religion and power do mix it's something exceptional and should be criminalized or 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 denigrated Mm. the argument here is that religion and power that's a mundane thing religion and power mix and are arguably inseparable. However, there is a process of purification discursively that's continually happening where the project of the West, and again, the West is a project, not a place, and it's a project that happens in many different places. And the project of the West, part of its tradition, and again, here, I don't see tradition and modernity as opposed. Tradition is simply one modality I focus more on experimentation, but tradition is an equally valid, valid modality. It's just that that has already been the focus of how we define what gets called religion. And so the book is focusing on experimentation as, again, something that is a modality that things we call religion engage in. It's not just obia, but why is it that obia is criminalized for it? And so as far as experimentation, I'll start with that term, and then, I, then I'll move to power. Experimentation is associated with science, to some extent with the arts, but I make the point that it's a modality that religious formations do engage in and that obia is explicitly experimental, particularly at moments where norms, for example, I talk about a a burial, a justice-seeking burial, where the very order and orientation of a burial is inverted, turned upside down, violated, to achieve a kind of unprecedented effect, which is the the prosecution of, of police officers who shot and killed two women and one man at my field site. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a long history of Obia being connected to justice seeking. That's a part of its history that I just went over, obviously, through slave resistance. But the idea that Obia is experimentation in some ways goes against the ideas that we have of tradition or even mm-hmm. of magic, although at different moments in time, magic has been seen as as experimental or even as a kind of proto-science in the anthropological mm-hmm. literature. But I'm working against purifications here that constantly seek to define religion, whether implicitly or explicitly, through oppositions to science, modernity, or experimentation. Mm. And so I, I show how Obia is experimental, how practitioners are willing to try out new sources of inspiration, which mm. through books, through dreams, that can then be accepted or rejected based on trial. And so one of my key interlocutors, who I call Papoy in the book, he's like a father to me in, in the, the research. He says, I don't, I don't believe and I don't doubt until I experiment. <laughs> and that was his philosophy of, of religion. He used, to, he used to be a pastor, but he rejected that. 
<laughs> became indigent because he did that because all of his networks were through the, the Christian church that he was involved in. Yeah. And he adopted this philosophy of religion, which I think is incredibly common, although it's not often remarked upon, mm. except perhaps in studies of spiritual but not religious or new age, where it's kind of seen as being some kind of buffet picking by mm. white people of Eastern traditions or something. <laughs> but I think there's something else that's going on here. And so he had an experimental philosophy of religion in that it was based on trial, experimentation, and also experience, which is a root of the word experimentation. So I see Obi as experimental, and that really comes up in chapter six when I'm talking about this way that in the Anglophone Caribbean, Obia, the word Obi and the word science are synonyms, and they have been for quite some time, as I remarked upon. And so how is it that Obia, the epitome of so-called African superstition in many popular and colonial accounts could be equated with science, which is supposed to be the epitome of modern Western rationality. And so part of the book is deconstructing this opposition and seeing things that might get categorized as magic or religion as experimental. Again, I don't talk about this modality of tradition as much, but you could say Obia is traditional. Again, I don't see tradition as opposed to modernity. In fact, I see modernity as being traditional as mm. the project of the West. And part of its tradition is projecting onto others magic, mm. projecting onto others irrationality. And you, you do unpack that a little bit, right? The sanitization of this category of religion, right? Religion, what, what, what gets officially recognized as religion are all these things that are, it's not superstitious, it's not backwards, it's not illogical, it's, it's geared towards ethics it's about transforming an individual towards leading an ethical life x y and z all things that are framed through a dominant lens right and the one who is to use this term in power setting the terms about what falls in to that category of religion and then i think as you demonstrate using force violent force to exclude those who fall out of that category right yeah so i guess that brings me to power I got to go back to your original question about experimentation and power. There's been an attempt, as you say, to purify religion from power and to transcend power, which is a part of the project of liberalism mm. that I talk about. Again, in talking about that, I don't want it to be confused with what we call liberal on the U.S. political spectrum. But I'm talking about liberalism rather as um, a kind of philosophical movement that's bound up with the project of the West that's in economics tied in with capitalism, free market ideologies. And on the social side, the classic theorist is Locke, and is, it's, it's bound up with this idea of religion being able to transcend power, and that that's the way that we'll see, achieve secular um, tolerance. But bound up in this project is an attempt to purify religion of power, which is in itself violent and uses power mm -hmm. to try to enact this impossible purification. And it, it does so through a, a constant tradition or, of projection. And so projecting improper mixture of power and religion onto Islam or Obia. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's a project of reform and it needs others to reform. And so this is a part of the tradition of, of modernity that, again, I'm focusing on experimentation and power. And I see power as a mundane feature of religious practice. But there's an attempt to purify religion of power. And I think this goes to one of your um, 
later questions about what are the implications of this desire or this attempt to transcend power that, I, that is integral to what I call liberalism. In your book, you write, the idea that good religion or good governance can be separated from coercive force is the foundation for the ideals of liberal secularism. And you brought it up just a moment ago. What do you think we can begin learning once we free ourselves from this kind of implicit bias or assumption, perhaps? Right. And again, when I'm talking about liberal, it's not the same as liberal as we use it on the U.S. political spectrum. It's a kind of ideology that in some ways encompasses both dominant Democrat and Republican ideologies in different ways. But I think the, the very idea that we could be freed from this assumption is itself a kind of premise of liberalism, which is an ideology of freedom with freedom defined as opposed to power. So that's where I think idealized liberal visions of free markets and democracy come from, which are constantly trying to get away from power. The idea that democracy can be an idealized form of governance. This idea of cryptocurrency with people that are all into that and saying that we can make a this revolution that will be totally self-organizing, using the, the free market to change society for the better. These are kind of idealized visions of free markets on the one hand, and democracy on, on the other. Hmm. And my point is that there, there are moral or ethical presumptions behind this desire for the transcendence of power. And that leads to the need to project these problems onto others. And I think the idea that religion can be separated from coercive force is part of the project of reform hmm. that is the West. Now, there's a question there about to what extent, maybe it's not a perfect project, but it's a direction to move toward. For hmm. example, isn't it bad when a religious leader uses power, violence, or coercion to control other people, for example. Mm -hmm. And certainly there are limits to this where it's quite obvious that we can draw lines. But to some extent, the idea that religion is chosen, and this is the, the basis for Locke's ideas of tolerance, is that religion must be chosen by the individual. Mm -hmm. But the idea that religion is simply chosen and doesn't involve any kind of power or force isn't really tenable. Mm. And so with Obia, Obia is kind of rendered as being aberrant in, in colonial laws because it's an assumption of supernatural power to get things done. And that kind of brings up the magic religion divide, which has been the classic divide, which is indebted mm -hmm. to this idea that religion can be separated from power, where magic is instrumental. Magic right. is what tries to get something done, whereas religion is just devotional or... <laughs> ethereal or otherworldly and not instrumental or manipulative in any way. Mm -hmm. And that brings me up another question, which is interesting because throughout your book, you also discuss the Pentecostals who are quite literally waging a crusade against what they perceive to be spiritual opponents, right? The spiritual war against Obia and, and, and other religious competitions, right? Why is that not always viewed as an instrumentalization of faith or instrumentalization of prayer, right? If you are waging war against the powers and principalities that can't be seen, right? At least as, what, as the Pentecostals believe, praying against these demons, could we not characterize that as being an instrumentalization or an experiment with power as well? Yeah, I think so. That, that's a really great point. And I talk a lot about spiritual warfare in the concluding chapter, chapter six, where I focus on a series of what were called demonic possessions that happened at the secondary school where I did my field research. 
and the ways that this was attributed to Obia, but also to other things such as the principal being Muslim or various other kind of non-Christian um, influences. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. And that's where it gets complicated, right? Because I don't want to return to invectives against magic to to render Pentecostal practices as being bad in some way. <laughs> and I think that there are also a variety of viewpoints. There is a minority viewpoint within Pentecostal churches, which is a decentralized movement and people can have a variety yeah. of opinions. There are a variety of opinions in regards to the place of African identified traditions. Mm -hmm. And so you even see Pentecost, there is a Pentecostal church that does public rituals with spiritual Baptists who are often, mm -hmm. spiritual Baptists are often considered to be representatives of Obia or Africanity, yeah. but there are Pentecostal churches that would be open to that. However, there is this power of spiritual warfare ideology, which is the idea that we're involved in a battle of good and evil, Christianity and non Christianity, and that that's a war. And so obviously wars are violent, right? So this is not religion divorced from violence, even if it is spiritual violence. Although as we see in various cases, it can bleed over into actual physical violence against African religions. Danielle Boaz has written a great book um, about that, which I think was reviewed on your network. And I wrote a response to it about this kind of violence, often stemming from Pentecostal movements against African religions in Brazil, yeah. other parts of the diaspora or West Africa. So, yeah, we could say that this is an experiment with power. The distinction I make in the book is that there's a certain idea of morality on which mm. that war is based that is different than the kind of ethics that I, that I often found amongst spiritual workers. Spiritual work is really the emic, more neutral term for what gets called obia, mm -hmm. problem-solving spiritual practices that are often identified as being African, but which have a variety of inspirational sources. The contrast there is that in spiritual warfare, there's a definitive battle between good and evil in which the lines mm. are very, very clearly drawn and victory of good over evil will release us or usher in an age of redemption. Mm -hmm. Now, what I found amongst practitioners of the threefold path of African religions in Trinidad was an idea of morality, which I detail in chapter three of balance. Mm and of there being a balance between positive and negative, and that that being yeah. an eth ethical ideal. You give the analogy of the car battery, right? The positive right. and negative poles, yeah. like they're neither good or bad. They're just yeah. there, you need both. <laughs> yeah, I call it electrical ethics. And so it's not an idea that certain negative forces aren't bad because they may be dangerous. Mm -hmm. They may be things that you wouldn't want to approach or mm -hmm. play with, but that they exist in the world and that the ability to know them to some extent can be a source of power and mm. that that power can be harnessed in certain ways for justice making or for ends that would be perceived as being desirable. Yeah. And there's even a, a sense that ways that that gets inverted, especially in the Kabbalah, because the Kabbalah is kind of the most negatively viewed of the, the threefold practices of African religion, where the Kabbalah, you know, includes demons or demonology and within the threefold within the field of african religions there's no consensus about whether that's acceptable or not some people don't mm -hmm. want to have anything to do with kabbalah okay. even though they're practitioners of african religions because it deals with christian demonology it deals with things that have been often considered the very epitome of of evil but there's even an attempt there's even a, a way that kabbalah will sometimes flip these moral hierarchies 
back and forth in talking about what's light and dark, what's good and bad, in order to generate knowledge and power that can be harnessed and used in, in ways. And so the idea is that power has negative and positive polarities, and that rather than kind of eradicating the negative polarity and just having the positive one, it needs both to, to, to flow. And for electricity to flow, there has to be both of these, these polarities. That doesn't mean it's not ethical because this isn't, this isn't ethics with virtues, but it's not the same kind of ethics as that which is involved in spiritual warfare, at least partially, because again, there's, and this goes to your question about Durkheim, but what I highlight in the book is the disagreement within communities that we might call one religion or one viewpoint, but that there's, there's even disagreement within like I said, there's disagreement amongst Pentecostals, there's disagreement amongst practitioners of African religion as to the ethics of different practices. Mm-hmm. And so that could go to your question about about Durkheim and ideas about magic and religion. I know we're running close to the time, so I'm going to ask this one last question. And I guess it's more of a speculative question, right, for you. What do you, what do you think is in store for the future of Obia in Trinidad, right? I know right now there there are very limited protections against practitioners of obia of spiritual workers in general that there's still a very negative perception socially about obia and the spiritual workers regardless of whether people seek them out or not for their services right do you think that obia could one day become protected under these quote unquote religious freedom laws or is that even something that spiritual workers of obia seek yeah, I think it's a good bet. It's interesting, though, that when Obia has been decriminalized, for example, in Trinidad, it was in reference to freedom of religion protections in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. However, it wasn't necessarily freedom of religion for Obia. Mm-hmm. It was the idea that Obia could lead to discrimination against other forms of religion that were recognized as religion, that discrimination against Obia could lead to discrimination against all African-identified religions. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a vindication of obia so much as the idea that obia being a catch-all category and a and a, a very discriminatory category could adversely reflect reflect these practices that did have recognized religious organizations that were affiliated with one political party or another. That was the rationale given for obia. So even when it's in reference to freedom of religion, it's not necessarily freedom of religion for obia itself. Although again. These lines between obia, what is obia, what is religion are incredibly complicated. So I think there there is hope and there's active movements. You know, in Trinidad, I should say too, one of the arguments of the book is it's it's a gross oversimplification to state that Caribbean people have simply internalized all of these colonial anti-African and anti-obia mm. sentiments and thus have these entirely negative views of obia. The first chapter really takes that argument, what I call the colonial false consciousness argument, to task. And I show how people have complex views about Obia that are context contingent. So even one person within one person, there might be different views on Obia that get activated in different situations. So I talk about the so-called mass demonic possessions at the local secondary school and the way that Obia was really pinned onto the onto the region where I worked is kind of mm. stereotyping it as being backwards or full of witchcraft. And that's why these things were happening. And so in that moment, I found a lot of people dissociating from Obia Mm -hmm. and saying, no, this isn't something that we do here. This isn't something we identify with. 
this is something you know those people in the cities practice and they just come down here looking for it because where I worked is a kind of rural region that had been stigmatized or even sometimes celebrated as being a cradle of opium. So there's dissociation in that event. Then I, I go to the, the police shootings where the police shot two young women and one man in a really brutal episode and Obia got activated during the protest as being a source of power that could could trump the the prejudices of the of the the, the criminal justice system mm. or the inertia of the criminal justice system toward actually prosecuting police and mm. so in that way there was an avowal of Obia in various ways so i think that there already are a variety of attitudes toward Obia although it generally gets kind of hidden under this umbrella of negative and that this is an internalization of colonial false consciousness. Within um, Jamaica, to take another example, there are movements to decriminalize obia, but, and it's within reference to religious freedom protections, but also with reference to African heritage and heritage protection. Now, this gets complicated because I, I was called in to do this radio interview in a radio station in Antigua, where three Indian nationals, men from India, who were guest workers there had been arrested for practicing obia for doing kind of Hindu astrology hmm. in a place of business. And that wasn't recognizable as obia to the people that called in from Jamaica because their rationale for decriminalizing obia was that it was an African heritage that should be protected. So there are limits to all of these rationales. Another argument could be that, well, because obia was a catch-all category, that's precisely why it needs to be decriminalized, because it could include just about any practice if it was practiced by a subaltern non-white person. And so that's precisely the danger of, of keeping obia criminalized. But within this these contexts, certainly born-again Christian movements play a big role in the region. And there is a lot of anti-obia sentiment that, that's still active. For example, in the Antigua case, it was a born-again Christian movement that had really protested outside of the Hindu astrologer's place of business and, and got them deported, that, that made that an event and activated mm -hmm. anti-obia sentiments and anti-obia laws. So these things are still being worked out and, and, and struggled with. Obia shows the limits of some of these liberal ideals of tolerance and religious freedom. And so I, I think that's important to recognize too, is to look at the limits of some of these um, protections. Another example is the Canadian Supreme Court and High Court cases where Obia was declared a religion that could be worthy of protection under Canadian law, but that it was still okay for a police officer to impersonate an Obia practitioner yeah. to, gain a, to gain a confession, which is very forcefully like the police officer ran into this woman's car, ingratiated himself into her as an obia practitioner, left dead crow on her doorstep, did all of these. I don't know how they got a dead crow, but they did all of these things. <laughs> they did all of these things to, you know, really forcefully push themselves on, on this woman mm. to in order for her to incriminate her, her children or adopted children. And it was de deemed to be okay because obia in the trial was either totally evil or not dedicated to a moral purpose, whereas mm. some Christian confession would be. So mm -hmm. again, there's this double standard where even within ideas that religious freedom is valid, there could still be these moral, what I call moral racial distinctions that can mm. still be activated to deny rights. And so um, it's important to pay attention to, to the limits 
of religious freedom protections. Well, in closing, I just want to say Experiments with Power was such a fun book. Uh, It has so many rich stories that I think really challenges every any reader right about presuppositions about what these categories of religion tradition magic mean really challenging us to think through the nuanced interfaces between religion and power right whether power is construed as state power or divine power and overall i just found this so fun to read thank you for joining us dr Crossan. thank you for being so generous with your time Thanks so much, Ray. Thanks for the the wonderful questions. It was was a really great exercise for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, take care, everybody, and see you next time. Hi there. David Robertson, co-founding editor of the Religious Studies Project here. I hope that you enjoyed the interview with Brent Crossan. I certainly did. Obea is really a fascinating subject. Um... The next interview we have will be with uh, Jason Josephson Storm and his recent book, Metamodernism. But that's not for a couple of weeks yet. Our next episode is another RSP remix, this time on the subject of cults. And anyone who listens regularly will know that I am doing scare quotes as I say that. Um, Learn all about the discourse on cults and in next week's episode which i am probably going to make an appearance in somewhere the week after that is our april episode of discourse our monthly show that takes a look at how religion is being talked about in the news media so stay tuned for that However, the main thing I want to tell you about when I'm here is to follow us on our social media, which is our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And if you're a businessy type, you can follow us on LinkedIn as well. If you have a secure job and would like to support the project, we would be very pleased for you to do so. You can make a one off donation via PayPal or you can become a regular patron um, at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com project RS. The people who donate regularly, even if it's only a few pound, really help us out keeping our episodes largely free of advertisements and certainly free of, you know, advertisements that aren't causes uh, that we support directly Um, we want to keep our episodes free forever and just having a few quid coming in every month really uh, basically it allows us to pay the people doing the work not as much as we would like but at least we're paying them something Uh, so you're really helping the project out so thanks for supporting us and most of all thanks for listening The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bach. 
audio editing by Alex Matthews, video editing by Alison Isidore, podcast transcription by Jaden Bartasius, and social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.